Welcome to the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast, featuring the original hockey insider, Bob McKenzie. Hey, that's me, answering your questions on hockey or just about anything else, within reason, of course. If you have a question you would like answered, email me at bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca. And we'll try to get it on the Bobcast. We were a blowout of wicked proportions, an accidental company. Hey everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the At TSN Hockey Bobcast. This one for Friday, October 12th, 2018. Actually, truth be told, I'm recording it on Thursday, October the 11th, but we always like to, to date these uh, on Fridays. Um, since we set it up as an every other Friday podcast. Nevertheless, um, for anybody who's interested, recording Thursday, October 11th. Uh, We should call this the no-name down and dirty edition of the Bobcast. You know, I usually try, unsuccessful as I may be, um, to be glib or funny or have some sort of thematic intro um, before we get to the questions. Um, Haven't had time to do any of that this week. Just want to get after it. Um, Very busy week. Uh, it was a little shorter than usual because of the holiday Monday, but um, two Leaf games for me, regional broadcast on Tuesday night, Leafs in Dallas. Uh, tonight I've got Leafs in Detroit, a regional broadcast for TSN. Uh, we had two editions of Insider Trading, Tuesday, Thursday, as usual, for the balance of the season. Uh, Stanford, Connecticut run on Wednesday for the NBC game. Uh, Vegas, Washington rematch didn't go very well for Vegas, and bad news for Vegas, by the way, that Paul Stastny uh, injury is likely to be a lot longer than the three games in reevaluation that the team talked about. It's going to be multiple weeks um, and at least maybe a month and, and who knows, maybe uh, even even longer than that. But it, uh, in any case, it was a busy week on, on that front at TSN. I got a boat in the water at the cottage I got to get out this weekend. I got a dock in the cottage, uh, a dock in the water at the cottage that I got to get out this weekend. Of course, I do have people to take the boat and the dock out, but I like to be there when it's done. Um, And the truth be told, the real reason that I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon instead of uh, Friday afternoon is because I want to try to sneak over to um, the Campus Ice Arena at uh, UOIT in Durham College. UOIT, for those that don't know, is University of Ontario, and I think it's Institute of Technology. Anyways, it's in North Oshawa. It's only about five or ten minutes from my house and um, the Ridgebacks, coached by Curtis Hodgins, a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine, um, looks like, I think it's their OUA um, home opener. And um, there's a couple of kids on that team that played for the Humboldt Broncos last year that were part of the bus crash. Uh, talked to some of the parents uh, when I was in Humboldt, so I'd like to just dash out quickly and uh, check up on those guys in their uh, their home opener. Uh, at UOIT. So that's the uh, the real reason. So anyways, uh, that's your intro for this week. Let's get after it with your questions. First question comes from Rocky Eldridge. Dear Bob Father, if you're the Edmonton Oilers, why in the world would you continue to push Milan Lucic on the first unit power play when you have as many young, skilled right wingers? I understand they have yet to prove it during the regular season, but Lucic has proved his ability during the regular season, and he cannot keep up to the rest of that unit. Uh, Raddy, Yamamoto, Kahara, Pugliarvi, Reeder would all be better fits based on speed and puck handling ability 
for the Oiler power play, that from Rocky. I should point out that Rocky sent this email on Wednesday, September 26th, and that was obviously prior to the opening game of the season for the Oilers in Gothenburg, Sweden, against the Devils. And it was pretty much a dismal um, effort for the Oilers in Game 1 in Sweden. But the one thing that, the one bright spot in the game probably was Milan Lucic on the power play, goal and an assist, and Lucic actually played pretty well. Um, point well taken by Rocky, though. It's it's an interesting power play, and a lot of people are questioning whether it's going to work. It's got five left shots on it. So McDavid's the only guy that plays, quote-unquote, his off wing, and he usually has the puck runs through him on the right wing, and he's obviously a left shot. You've got the left shot Lucic in front of the net as the net front presence. You've got left shot Dreisaitl in the center slot or bumper position. You've got left shot Ryan Nugent Hopkins on the left wing, and you've got left shot Clefbaum on the point. Uh, I know Ray Ferraro in our season preview was amazed that the Oilers run this configuration and continue to have McDavid dish the puck from that side on the right side because there's virtually no one-time opportunities um, for anybody unless somebody gets the puck to McDavid or McDavid gives it to somebody and gets it back and they play a little give and go. So we'll see if the power play uh, is successful or not. Um, I must confess, there were two players... let me preface the, before I talk about the two players. I don't cheer for anybody. Um, I don't have any rooting interests in the National Hockey League team or player-wise. But I do find myself sometimes cheering for guys to do well. And I, I will confess that two players that I hoped, I hope, have a really good year this year, uh, Jonathan Taves with the Chicago Blackhawks and Milan Lucic with the Edmonton Oilers, for the simple reason that last year, and neither one of them was very good last year, um, so many people just wrote them off. Um, in We are such a judgmental society. I think Twitter really promotes that, um, where you're just, I was going to say 140 characters, but in 280 characters, just decimating people. And, and I think, you know, I can't, I didn't think that Jonathan Taves has done, and, and I realize Lucic is a little different situation, but nevertheless, after the year he had last year, everybody just assumed, well, what you saw was what you're going to get. And I thought, you know what? Lucic is a really smart hockey player. don't know if people realize how hard he works at it and, and how much of a student of the game he is and that maybe he needed to adjust his training or maybe he needed to adjust the way that he plays. But I always like to think that really smart players like him and Jonathan Taves, who's another guy that's like really, really bright, um, that they're going to find a way, that they're proud guys, and I'm, I was hoping and am hoping that these guys will come into this season and for everybody who wrote them off after last year, just really stick it to those people. And uh, there was a lot of fans and a lot of media. And um, Taves is off to an amazing start, so that's good. And as I said, Lucic was probably the lone bright spot, aside from the usual plays Connor McDavid makes that nobody finishes um, for the Oilers. But uh, I'm kind of hoping that Lucic has a a better go of it, but uh, Rocky's point's well taken. It's going to be fascinating to uh, to watch that five-left shot power play configuration and to see if Lucic can maintain what he did in game number one. As for the Oilers, I mean, thanks to the National Hockey League, they're coming out of witness protection plan uh, tonight against the Boston Bruins. 
finally. We're, like, we're a week and a half into the season. It feels like we've been playing hockey forever this season already. And the Oilers have played one game in Sweden a, um, a week ago Saturday. Uh, at, it, it was for us in the East, an afternoon game. So we're finally going to get to see Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers in prime time against the Boston Bruins. And uh, it's kind of been a funny out of sight, out of mind for the guy who's supposed to be the face of the game. So I understand why the NHL does the, the European tours to start kick things off. But uh, it sure feels weird that McDavid has just played one game and has virtually been a non-presence in the National Hockey League landscape for the better part of almost two weeks. Next question comes from David Hagen. Hi, Bob. What do you think will happen with the Jets and Jacob Truba after this season? I believe the best thing for them to do is to trade him next offseason. He seems to not want to play for Winnipeg long term and wants way more than what he's worth, in my not-so-humble opinion. Last year, the Jets proved we could win without him when he was injured, and that would free up more money to pay Patrick Laine and Kyle Connor next summer. Would the return be worth it if he's a year from UFA? That from Dave uh, in Taipei via Winnipeg. Well, um, I guess we should probably, before we answer that question, we should review the, the, the contractual history of Jacob Truba with the Winnipeg Jets because it's, it's really kind of fascinating for a guy who is now, what's his age, 24 years old, be 25 in February. Um, signed his three-year entry-level contract um, and played his, his first three years. Then did a two-year bridge deal at $3 million per year. Didn't commit to the long-term deal. Um, and then went to salary arbitration in the off-season. And, the, and Truba and the Jets were not able to negotiate a contract. Um, the five, one-year $5.5 million deal is an arbitration award, though that he has, is an arbitration award. And it's interesting that they, even in spite of the arbitration, which usually pushes the player and the team together to do either a long-term deal or something longer than a one-year deal, um, they ended up with uh, that one-year award. So that's why a lot of fans in Winnipeg have questions about Jacob Truba. Now, it's worth noting, he's, he's got the one-year deal this year, um, and he's got one more year after this season before he's an unrestricted free agent. So David brings up a really good point, and, and that is probably the optimal time if you're going to trade Jacob Truba is in the offseason. But like Eric Carlson and like a lot of guys, he becomes an extended rental. That is, you get a full year of him, but uh, unless somebody can negotiate a long-term deal with him, um, your the, the Jets' price acquisition, what it would cost to acquire Truba, um, the Jets' take on that half of it um, might not be as much as some people would like, given the fact that you know he's a top-pairing defenseman on that team. He and Morrissey are the, the shutdown pair, although the way the Jets spread things around with Bufflin on the second pair and oftentimes Tyler Myers on the third, it's extremely balanced, and that shutdown role um, is, is very well supported by the second and third pairings in Winnipeg. So I think it is fair. There's a lot of Jets fans who, who don't believe that Truba has shown an inclination to want to commit to the team long-term. And I think that's fair. That's, that's probably accurate. 
Um, and whether that's a Winnipeg thing or whether it's simply that he wants way, way, way more money than the Jets are prepared to or could even consider, given all the other things they have to do. And, and David correctly pointed out that the Patrick Line deal and the Kyle Connor deal are not going to be easy deals to get done. Um, so, yeah, this, this offseason is the time to Fisher cut bait with Truba and, and the Winnipeg Jets. Either he's prepared to do a long-term deal this coming summer, uh, in in the summer of 2019, or um, the best thing for the Jets to do would be to trade him. And and then, as I said, you're impacted by the fact that he's a year away from unrestricted free agency and, uh, and, and see if he wants to negotiate with somebody else. Maybe he can do his free agent shopping a little bit early and maybe there's a sign and trade there. Uh, lots of things to consider, but that's the summer of 19 and uh, the Jets aren't particularly worried about that right now. I think as we mentioned um, on a previous Bobcast or talking about the, the Winnipeg Jets in the season preview, they're all in to win the Stanley Cup and right now their best chance to do that is with Jacob Truba in their lineup. So they don't even need to discuss any of this stuff until next season. But it's going to be a hot topic next year and uh, I don't doubt for a moment that the Jets feel like they need to continue grooming Tucker Pullman um, because ultimately he, whatever, if Winnipeg were to trade Truba, if they weren't to get a long-term deal done with him next summer, and that, that's still a possibility, I suppose, uh, although it, history suggests three-year entry-level deal, a two-year bridge deal, a one-year salary arb deal. There's a real absence of long-term commitment there, and uh, so we'll see where it goes. But as I said, in the meantime, I think it's really important to make sure Tucker Pullman plays a lot. If it's not in Winnipeg with the Manitoba, then then if it's not with Winnipeg in the NHL, then with the Manitoba Moose in the American Hockey League, and make sure he's he's ready to hit the ground running. If if Truba's dealt and there's a big hole on the blue line, depending obviously on what they might get back for Truba in a trade. Up next is Rishi, who says, "Hi Bob, what are your thoughts on the Dallas Stars this season?" How far do you think they will go? I never know how far any team will go. I guess the goal for every team is just to make the playoffs and give themselves a chance to do something here. There's a lot to like about the Dallas Stars. Um, Ben Bishop is certainly off to a good start, and that's important for any team to get some real good goaltending in the early going. He's been outstanding in the early going. I mean, that the top line that they've been playing together is absolutely dynamic, one of the best in the National Hockey League, Jamie Benn on the left side, Tyler Sagan in the middle, and one of my fav- new favorite players, relatively new favorite players in the uh, the NHL over the last number of years, Alexander Radulov, who's like a dog on the bone for that puck. I love watching this guy play and the, the visceral emotion that he shows. So, yeah, they're all stacked up on the first line with their talent. Um, I, I like the Klingberg, Liddell, uh, uh, Lindell, rather, um, First pairing on defense, um, this Miro Haskinen, I guess that's how we're pronouncing it, is Haskinen. By the way, we've got to talk about pronunciations at some point. Tavares, Tavares, uh, Marchant, Marchand, um, Haskinen as opposed to Heiskinen. In any case, uh, that's a subject for another day. But uh, th- this kid is uh, phenomenal, only 19 years old. He looks really, really good playing on that second pair with Mark Mathot. So, like their goaltending right now, generally like their defense, um, love the, the, the star status when they load everybody up on the first line, and their power play, 
Um, and there's another topic for maybe the next one. We'll we'll let this season breathe a little bit, but my goodness, a lot of power plays are ripping it up in the early going here. Toronto Maple Leaf power play, lethal. Washington Capitals, lethal. Philadelphia Flyers, lethal. Dallas Stars, lethal. Winnipeg Jets, lethal. Teams are going to live and die by their power play, I feel, this year. But uh, as I say, we'll get we'll let the season breathe a little before we start examining whether this league is just turning into a power play league or not, where teams are, are feasting on the power play and, and not getting things done five on five. Um, so back to the Stars up front. The, the thing that concerns me a little bit is I, I like what they're doing in terms of some of the building from the bottle. I think Rupe Hintz playing on the fourth line is a, is a young guy, 21 years old, who looks like he's got a chance to be a pretty good player. Jason Dickinson's now 23. He's got some skill. But, and, and big Val Nakushkin is, is back into the, the mix after his uh, sojourn in Russia. Um, so they, they've, and, and Brett Ritchie, they've got some size and they've got some potential skill on their fourth line. Um, I love Radic Faxa, the, 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 the two-way center, in a checking role, in a shutdown role. And I think Devin Shore and, and Tyler Pitlick are good fits on that line and, and they'll match up, do a lot of the heavy lifting uh, to try and free up um, Sagan's line for, for maybe some more favorable matchups. I think where they start to run into a problem is, five on five anyways, is on the second line when you've got a, a journeyman guy like Blake Como uh, playing up there, Jason Spezza, uh, who's on the final year of his, um, his uh, $7.5 million contract, um, and, and uh, on the left side, Matthias Janmark. So again, they're NHL players, but I think there's there's a little too much top heavy in this lineup, and quite frankly, after the Leafs beat them on Tuesday night, I saw where Jimmy Montgomery, the new head coach in Dallas, who I think is uh, is, is going to be a breath of fresh air for the players, and, and they'll respond to him. Um, he was talking about maybe balancing the lines out more and maybe breaking up that top unit, and I think ultimately they're going to have to give that a go because. It seems to me that if they're not scoring on the power play or they're not getting goals five on five from that top line, they may not be getting enough balanced attack um, in their lineup. So um, we'll see. But uh, I think they should be a playoff team. And um, I think if they um, if they solve some of that imbalance in their lineup um, and get the second line scoring a little bit more, um, that maybe, just maybe, they're a team that could make some noise. Next question comes from Adam Hep, and in the subject line it simply says, Jeff Skinner. Bob, have you heard anything about the Sabres and a possible extension for Skinner during the season, or are they going to wait and see how the year goes? Got to think the Sabres can get him a little cheaper during the season compared to him hitting the open market. That from Adam Hep who happens to come from Charlotte, North Carolina, obviously a Kaniac uh, who's following up on Skinner after Skinner ceased to be a member of the organization um, when he f- waived his no-move clause and no full no-trade clause to go to the Buffalo Sabres from the Carolina Hurricanes in the offseason. Skinner, of course, is in the final year of his contract, $5.725 million for the 26-year-old, scheduled to become an unrestricted free agent. Um, right now, in answer to your question, Adam, it's see how the year goes is the answer. Um, Buffalo wants to see how Skinner's going to do. He's playing in a line with Patrick Berglund and Kyle Oposo. 
I think he's on the second power play unit. Um, and I think Skinner wants to see how the year unfolds for him. Um, he knew that he, he felt like he needed a change of scenery from Carolina. So that's why he waved to go to a, a city that's very close to his hometown of Toronto and also a place where he was going to get opportunity um, to be the best he can be offensively, although some would suggest not being on the first power play um, isn't going to help him in that vein. In any case, I think everybody's just going to take it as it is for now and get to the second half of the season, and I think it'll become elementary at that point whether one side or the other feels like, hey, this is something we want to pursue, and uh, if, if, if there's mutual interest and they can start to go down that road and talk about a contract, um, if there's not, if only one side's interested and the other's not, or if neither's interested, then uh, put Jeff Skinner down as going to unrestricted free agent in the summer of 2019. Got lots and lots of questions uh, from the fallout of the uh, Tom Wilson 20-game suspension, which he's appealing, of course. I would expect that there'll, uh, in relative short order, there'll be some sort of date set uh, for next week. That will be what the week of the what? So today is the 11th, the 12th, the 13th. So the week of October 15th, I would imagine there'll be uh, an appeal hearing with NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, and uh, Wilson will be seeing if uh, Bettman will do for him what Bettman did for Rafi Torres a number of years ago when Torres was assessed a 25-game suspension for hitting Marion Hossa, and Bettman reduced it to 21 games. Doesn't happen very often when Gary Bettman reduces a suspension, um, but I'll be curious to see on the Wilson one whether... uh, he might, uh, Batman might see fit to discount a couple of games. Um, in any case, whatever happens in the appeal with Batman, Wilson is also entitled to appeal to the independent arbitrator. Uh, so take this to outside counsel, basically, and that's uh, per terms of the CBA. If you have a suspension of six or more games, the player um, has the right to take it to independent arbitration to see if he can get any more games knocked down. Uh, So as I said, a number of Wilson-related questions. Uh, This first one comes from Mel. Mel says, Hi, Bob. How can and why is it that the PA, the NHL PA, represents Tom Wilson and not Oscar Sundquist? If player safety is the issue, why is the NHL PA representing Tom not a conflict of interest? It seems that the injured party, in this case Sundquist, is not entitled to have a say or that they even matter. If the NHL and the Players Association want to do away away with head hits and other dirty hits, then I would think the PA should not represent the accused. The NHL and Players Association should have a separate party, say a lawyer, represent the accused if they appeal. A hit to the head may not cause immediate damage, but take a look at Joe Murphy's case. If a player is suspended, the team should not be able to replace him on the roster. It is my opinion Tom Wilson should have received double the suspension. I also think he intentionally hit to cause some damage. When he broke Zach Aston Reese's jaw last year, he was laughing about it. No remorse, only glee. Not sure if you can or will answer any of these as you seem to be a fan of Tom's. That from Mel. Well, first off, Mel, um, I have no problem uh, answering any of these, as you said. And I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a fan of Tom Wilson. I'm certainly not a fan of Tom Wilson hitting people in the head. And because Tom Wilson has done that with some regularity lately, 
I guess you could say I'm not a Tom Wilson fan in that regard, but I also would say I am a fan in, to the extent that I think he's capable of playing some really good hockey. I think he can serve a really useful purpose, and but obviously not hitting people in the head and being as menacing as he's been. Um, now suspended, what, uh, four times in uh, his last 105 games played in the, in the National Hockey League. Um, so back to the question, though, about the appeal, uh, appearance of a conflict of interest. It's always been this way, and I've always duly noted it. It's, it's really funny, though, and, and Mel's absolutely 100% right. The National Hockey League Players Association, Oscar Sundquist, and... Tom Wilson are members in good standing of the NHLPA. But when Wilson hit Sunquist in the head illegally and there's a hearing, the NHLPA goes to that hearing ostensibly to lobby in, in many cases um, and hope that the suspension is as, for as few games as possible and the player ends up losing the least amount of money as possible. So you are an association for the perpetrator and the victim, but the association seems to have a more vested interest in protecting the perpetrator uh, in terms of lost income. And um, it, it, it doesn't make sense on one level, but as I say, it's always been that way. And the players in the National Hockey League are the ones that if they really wanted it to change, would. Um, because as Mel points out, for every one of these incidents, there's a perpetrator, there's a victim. And those victims... If, if they're upset about the Players Association seemingly, you know, in the corner of the guy who's the perpetrator trying to protect his income, um, it's up to those players to speak up at, at association meetings. Um, I'm not sure there's any, uh, anything outside of that that I could do or the NHL or anybody else for that matter. Um, here's a question, a uh, Wilson-related question. comes from Luke Jensen on Boshcon Lake, Ontario. I know where that is. Right up Highway 35 from my place, uh, just past Carnarvon. Lovely lake. Um, uh, so the reason I know how to, how to pronounce Boshcon, even though it's spelled Boshkung, um, is because a good friend of the show, Eric Duhatchek, uh, now works for The Athletic, based in Calgary. Uh, his family cottage has always been on Boshcon, so... There you go. Anyways, um, hey, Bob, love all of your work. On the upcoming Tom Wilson suspension, this is obviously sent before he was suspended. In the event that he receives a lengthy suspension, say for math's sake, 10 games, and he forfeits approximately $63,000 per game in salary, he would be out $630,000. Is his share to his agent based on total season salary or earned salary? Would he, in theory, be losing an additional $31,000-ish, given a 5% fee to his agent, if it's based on total contract salary? Are agent fees paid on pre- or post-tax income? That from Luke Jensen. This is a really intriguing question, um, and I would have, without knowing the answer to it, and I didn't know the answer to it when I saw it, I would have said, I would have imagined the answer would be, well, you know what? Uh, Tom's got to pay his agent fees, and he pays those when he signs his contract on a year-by-year basis. Um, and uh, he's just SOL. 
you know, out of luck um, if uh, if he gets a big suspension. So he's paid his agent fees, and now he's losing money because of it. So it's like a a, a double hit. Um, but in fact, quite the opposite is true. In in the case of Wilson, in this instance, um, and by the way, it was a twenty game suspension. So it ends up being about $1.26 million. Um, Whatever percentage his agent takes on his contract, um, the agent doesn't get that money. So if if there are monies lost to suspension, um, Tom Wilson only pays agent fees on the earned salary, as Luke put it. And uh, I didn't know that. So um, not an ideal situation for the agent. Um, not an ideal situation for Tom Wilson. And uh, one more reason why there's an appeal in the works um, because any games they can get knocked off, and for every game that they could get knocked off by appeal, whether it's through Gary Bettman or the independent arbitrator, it's 63000 bucks, and uh, to Wilson as well as the agent's share of that. Next Tom Wilson question comes from Richard Kelly. Uh, hi, Bob. I saw you comment on the Wilson suspension tonight on NBC. This was obviously uh, sent on Wednesday, October 3rd. It was the day the suspension was handed down. So as uh, Richard says, I saw you comment on the Wilson suspension tonight on NBC. I just wanted to suggest that on top of your mentioning that it was, quote, a clear message from the NHL, unquote, and that it, quote, surprised even us insiders, unquote, I wish you'd just gotten out there and said... I agree with it. It's time this kind of idiotic goon play and lowlifes like Wilson were removed from the game. He's done this too many times. He's showing he doesn't care about others and that the NHL's message is not getting through to him. There's no place for those kinds of hits in the National Hockey League. We know too much about the long-term effects to the brain. No one should have to fear that kind of violence on the ice. You have a platform. Use it, please, for the good of the game. Many thanks. That from Richard Kelly. Well, first off, Richard, thanks very much for the uh, for the email. Uh, thoughtful, um, well uh, well written, um, and there's a number of ways I can uh, I can go with this one. Um, I'm not a big guy on voicing opinions, especially in an instance when I'm talking about Tom Wilson's suspension on on the uh, Wednesday night hockey on NBC, and I've got thirty or forty seconds to uh, basically make a point about the suspension, about the appeal process, all the nuts and bolts. Um, I'm most in- interested. I-, I-, I feel like my primary function in my role um, on NBC or TSN, more often than not, it's not always the case, but more often than not, is to provide information and insight. And I'm, I-, I don't feel like my opinion necessarily adds anything. Um, I know a lot of people want opinions from me, and some people, when I don't give an opinion, think I'm afraid to, to give an opinion, to take a stand, which is absolutely ludicrous. Um, I don't think people should be hit in the head. Um, I've stated it on many occasions in the past. I just don't know if every time I'm giving information and insight as a news person... Um, that I need to interject my opinion because for everybody out there who likes to feel validated and then, and quite often a lot of the people who say, 
we want to hear your opinion. Well, that's because they want to find out whether or not I agree with the way they feel. And if I do, it makes them feel good and they feel validated and it's all hunky-dory. And But if, if they don't feel the same way, now they're, now they're thinking more about uh, that guy disagrees with my opinion, he's out to lunch, he's wrong, as opposed to listening to the information and the insight that I was, that I was providing. And as I say, um, on this whole issue of head hits, by the way, um, when, when, when this first became a really big deal, and this was post-lockout 2004, the whole new rules package came in, the game sped up, and when the game sped up, we had a massive problem from 2005 especially Right through to right, well, right through to now, but especially 2005 to 2010, there was an enormous number of head hits and and you know the the introduction of Rule 48 and all of those things. I would go so far as to say I can't think of too many other people in the media who got up on a soapbox more than I did and, and wrote things about hits to the head. Um, that there needs to be more, the, need, the league needs to be more vigilant, the suspensions and the penalties need to be longer, that they need to go to the international rule. Um, any hit to the head's a bad hit to the head, um, accidental or otherwise. And for the longest time, I, I was trumpeting and championing that cause because I, I believe strongly in it, and anybody who knows my background knows that I had a son who was, uh, had to quit hockey at age 14 because of concussions. I, I know from personal experience, and, and I've talked about this many, many times in the past, um, how dark and evil uh, and insidious the concussion problem is and uh, lived it firsthand for a number of years with my own kid. So that, that probably was a, a reason why I was as adamant as I was about it. But what I started to realize over the course of time was that when you become an advocate like that and you're constantly giving an opinion, um, it, get, it just gets old. And, and people, I think, start to tune you out. And I started to get a little battle fatigue from everybody just tuning me out. And, and I started to think this is way more complex and way more nuanced, although at the very core, and, I, and, and I've come back full circle, um, I'm with Ken Dryden. Um, and, and his position is any hit to the head is as a bad hit to the head and that there should be a penalty in the National Hockey League if you hit somebody in the head, same as in the International Hockey with the double IHF. So anyways, back to the original premise from Richard. I understand why people want to hear my opinions on this, that, or anything else. Um, and there's times when I, when I do provide them, but I do view my role as being more information and insight-oriented as opposed to opinion. And quite frankly, especially with social media and Twitter, um, I, I think it's old. With pe- People just love to express opinions. Everybody's got one. And you know, I think the line I use is, opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one. And, and after a while, I mean, I, to be honest, for mo- I, I see people express an opinion and I'm looking at them and I'm like, I don't care. I really don't care what you think. A lot of times I don't care what I think. And I understand other people do sometimes, but nevertheless, um, I don't know. Um, I, I read um, I, I, some of the books that I read, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, both by Ryan Holiday, both great books. 
little bit about stoicism. The ego is, is the enemy one is, is kind of neat. And it talks a lot, and, and this is going to be the most hypocritical statement ever. But um, one of the premises of the book is that people talk too much. <laughs> and, and here I am banging out a, an hour-plus podcast every other week and doing this for a living. Um, it would be a pretty bad podcast if it was an hour of silence. Well, may, maybe it wouldn't be. Maybe it'd be an improvement. Um, but anyways, um, uh, some of the lines from Ego is the Enemy. Watch how much better you get when you plug that hole. And that hole, of course, is your mouth. Um, there's another one. Work quietly in the corner. Ignore the impulse to seek recognition before acting. And uh, a man's best treasure is a thrifty tongue. And talking, listening to ourselves talk, performing for an audience. It can be therapeutic. Does that not count for something? And I, and I, I actually believe that sometimes it does. But uh, the ego is the enemy would say, no, it doesn't count for anything. That uh, talk is talk and actions action and don't confuse the two. So anyways, I've used up way too many words. I should be more thrifty with it. But uh, thanks to Richard for that on the, uh, the Tom Wilson suspension. Change gears with this next email. This one comes from Giovanna. Giovanna says in her subject line, Antoine Vermette chatter? Question mark. Hi, Bob. Not necessarily sure this will make it on the Bobcast per se, but I was wondering if you've heard any chatter about Antoine Vermette landing with a team, possibly in a fourth-line center role. Thanks very much, Giovanna. Well, my, I'm led to believe that um, he was looking for work, uh, the veteran uh, defensive-minded center who's really good on face-offs and a pretty good penalty killer, um, but um, didn't get a contract, uh, didn't get a PTO with anybody. And um, that's not to say that he's not interested in in opportunities if the right one were to come along, but uh, my understanding is that he's currently home in Arizona, um, prepared to come back to the National Hockey League if the right opportunity were to present itself. Um, but failing that um, is just hanging in Arizona. And, you know, it might be over for Antoine Vermette um, unless somebody feels the desperate need to pick up the phone and reach out and uh, for that type of player. So that's your Antoine Vermette update. Next question comes from Michael Hofer from Winnipeg, Manitoba, who tells me the Canucks, Correct pronunciation of my last name is a long O like the gardening tool. Ho, Michael Hofer. There we go. Hi, Bob. Welcome back, and I'm glad you enjoyed your summer. Apologies in advance for the shotgun approach to these questions and feedback. First, the feedback. In regards to your questioning regarding changing the format of the Bobcast, I personally really enjoy your personal takes on questions posed to you and feel that bringing in guests or having a regular co-host will take away the almost personal connection a one-man Q&A show can build with a listener. Okay, this listener. With the current format, it almost feels like kicking back with a couple of drinks and shooting the breeze for an hour, as opposed to listening into someone's conversation. Also, to be honest, for guests and co-hosts in a hockey podcast, there are other pods that scratch that particular itch. The Bobcast is refreshing in that it's just Bob. Now to the question. With Seattle's expansion process popping up in the news once more, I'm curious if the NHL is considering divisional realignment. Seattle's obvious placement in the Pacific Division 
will further unbalance the Pacific and Central. I also don't think Arizona, being the easternmost Pacific team, is a viable candidate to be moved over to the Central to balance things out, given the time difference, though the thought of the the 1.0 Jets and the 2.0 Jets being in the same division holds some appeal. Could or would the NHL in the future consider an eight-division times four-team alignment similar to the National Football League? I feel this could work to highlight regional rivalries by basing the divisional alignment on proximity, and it's even possible to maintain an 82-game schedule with even scheduling. And yes, I actually have a sample division breakdown and schedule algorithm. Well, there you go. That from Michael. Okay, um, you're, you're absolutely right, Michael. The, with, with Seattle likely to be the 32nd team, perhaps in the league as early as the fall of 2020, there is going to need to be um, realignment. But um, to your point on Arizona, while the Coyotes might not love the idea, I get the very strong feeling from the National Hockey League that in their mind of realignment, less is more. And that is, rather than tear apart everything that exists now, the most logical and plausible and maybe likely thing to happen when Seattle comes into the league is simply to smack Seattle where you would expect in the Pacific Division with the three California teams, Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary, and um, move Arizona from the Pacific to the Central. And I think you're absolutely right, Michael, about the time difference, and that's not ideal for those central teams or for Arizona. But I think it's the lesser of all evils, and even though Arizona might not like it and some of the central teams might not like it as much, um, I think that's the most likely scenario once Seattle's in the league. Next question has something of an expansion flavor as well. Good morning, Bob. Thanks for the opportunity to send in a question. After growing up, living and raising our own family in the greater Toronto area, my husband and I three years ago moved back to Atlantic Canada for a better work-slash-life balance. My question is, back in 2013, the question was raised whether the Atlantic area could support an NHL team. Your thoughts on the possibilities of NHL expansion by Mr. Bettman in general, but is it so far-fetched for us here in the Maritimes to ever dream of that scenario. Thanks and all the best for a new season. Regards, Karen. Uh, Karen Holland, she adds, bracket, knee, Sanger. And fellow Woburn Collegiate alum, one of the Sanger twins. Well, isn't that funny? Um, I went to Woburn Collegiate from 1970 to 1975. And this person who submitted this email, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think we actually went to elementary school together too. Um, Bendale Public School. Anyways, uh, Karen Sanger and her twin sister, I think it was Carrie. Uh, So talk about your small world. Here we are all these many years later doing the Bobcast and uh, somebody I went to school with in my youth uh, reaches out and asks a question about expansion, NHL expansion to the Atlantic region. Uh, Well, there's all sorts of folks in Quebec City who are screaming right now saying the Maritimes, never mind the Maritimes, what about Quebec City? Um, and, and the reality is that I think expansion, uh, further expansion in Canada uh, has probably outgrown itself. Um, $500 million for the expansion fee for the Vegas Golden Knights, $650 million for the Seattle expansion team. 
I just don't see how the numbers could ever add up for Quebec City and uh, and, and even for the Maritime, Halifax would be probably the only place. And I just can't imagine that the uh, that it would be sustainable and economically viable. So, um, Karen, great to hear from you. And uh, in answer to your question, no, I don't envision uh, Atlantic Canada being a candidate for NHL expansion. Next up is an email from Chris in Minneapolis. Hi, Bob. As preseason is coming to an end, I thought it would be a good time to get your thoughts on the agreement between the NHL and the Canadian Hockey League as it relates to drafted players. With the trend in the NHL going towards younger players, I was wondering if there's any interest from NHL teams to renegotiate this agreement to allow a few of the drafted players to play on the respective American Hockey League teams instead of going back to junior. For example, the Philadelphia Flyers would have the right to assign Morgan Frost to Lehigh Valley instead of of being required to return him to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds as he's already proved to be a dominant player at the CHL level. Thank you for any insight on this topic and keep up fantastic work on the Bobcast. Um, This is a common refrain, especially um, coming out of training camp, when there are a lot of teams that do have a player uh, like Morgan Frost or or others who have done excelled at the junior hockey level, uh, not ready for the National Hockey League. Um, The intermediate step that might make the most sense for the development would be in the American Hockey League. But the NHL-CHL agreement um, says in no uncertain terms that those players must be returned to their junior team unless there is a provision in there. If there's a player who's played four full years in the, in the CHL, that player can be assigned to the American Hockey League. And usually the only way that happens is somebody who had exceptional status, uh, came into the league as a 15-year-old, But in any case, um, I don't think there's any appetite on the part of the NHL to change that, change this. I know there's no appetite to change it on the part of the CHL. Now, should point out, let me have a quick look here. I got to do my research. Here we go. Uh, By the way, the NHL CHL agreement expires June 30th, 2020. So it does need to be renegotiated. in a, in a couple of years here, less than two years. Um, as I said, the CHL believes this is a motherhood issue, that if you start cherry-picking certain players and don't send them back to junior hockey and put them in the American Hockey League as 19-year-olds, you're going to water down the product in the CHL. You're going to stunt the development of the 16- and 17-year-olds who have to learn to play against these really good 19-year-olds who could be dominant players in junior hockey. CHL would also argue that very rarely is a player's development retarded by staying in junior hockey too long. Uh, it's almost unheard of. Um, there's nothing wrong with you know a, a really good player like Morgan Frost going back and being even more dominant as a 19-year-old than he was as an 18-year-old. And, and every player could stand to, to, to get more time to develop. Um, I do believe there are general managers in the National Hockey League that would want the rule changed in a heartbeat. Um, if they think it suits their purpose to where they could send a 19-year-old to to, jun- to the American League and send it back to junior, they, they would do it in a heartbeat. Um, but I, as I said, I don't believe the NHL proper, that is Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, 
and uh, the various uh, front office types have any appetite to uh, to change what has been the case for quite some time because ultimately they feel like they could be sowing some seeds to weaken the overall quality of the junior hockey product in Canada. Final question of this episode of the Bobcast goes to Jordan Mock from Waterloo, Ontario. Hey, Bob, want to start off by saying thanks for all your hard work and dedication to the Bobcast, in addition to all your work with TSN, NBC, etc. Always prove providing insightful knowledge, stats, and stories. My question relates to the World Juniors and Halifax potentially being a host city. Being a Halifax, Nova Scotia native, I remember the 2003 World Junior Tournament even though I was only 12 years old. And I remember every game at the Metro Centre in Halifax, now known as Scotiabank Centre. I remember it being sold out and putting the city into an absolute frenzy. Having watched the more recent World Juniors in other areas around Canada, the attendance levels being in bigger cities have fallen. Is there any chance the World Juniors ever return to Halifax? I feel like it has the right mix to be a great host city again. Interested to hear your thoughts on Halifax Cheers and keep up the good work. That from Jordan. A great question, and um, this is an interesting one. Um, recent history, um, when Canada hosts the World Juniors, or for that matter, the United States, because last year's World Junior Tournament was in Buffalo, we've seen over the the two World Juniors that were shared between Montreal, Toronto, Toronto, Montreal, so 2015-2017, as well as the 2018 World Juniors last year in Buffalo, um, we did see attendance flag considerably. And we said at the time that it was probably primarily due to just an oversaturation of the market, that uh, the World Junior brand, if you will, um, there was too many games available to the people in southern Ontario and, uh, and Montreal. And as a result, the attendance suffered greatly. Um, and it did. And when the attendance suffers, it, it tends to diminish the feel and and sort of the cachet of the World Junior Tournament. Uh, first thing we should report is an update on attendance, uh, certain ticket sales um, for Vancouver and Victoria. Vancouver and Victoria are co-hosting this year's 2019 World Junior Championship. Happy to tell you that Victoria, every ticket for every game in Victoria is already sold out. In fact, I was told they sold 103% of the tickets. I'm not sure how that is possible. I was never very good at math. I guess it means there's going to be a lot of standing room crowds. And that's, that's impressive because the games in Victoria, as I understand it, is for the pool not involving Canada. So every game in Victoria for this year's World Junior sold out. Every ticket sold. Um, Vancouver is already up to 84, 85% capacity. And, and that is unbelievable um, at, this, at this date. I mean, we're only early October, mid-October. And uh, it, it tells me that every game in Vancouver, especially the ones involving Canada, is going to be totally sold out. So the, I think that's encouraging on a number of levels. Number one, it tells you that the World Junior brand is not damaged in Canada, it's just that it was being put in the same place for too many years. Um, so uh, th- that's that's good news for those of us that uh, care about the World Juniors, and and uh, I think this Vancouver Victoria World Junior is going to be fantastic, and we'll have a lot of cachet. 
Um, but we are also starting a string here um, where Canada is going to host the World Junior Championships a lot over the next 10, 12 years. Um, I can tell. So 2019, it's in Vancouver and Victoria. In 2020, it's in the Czech Republic. In 2021, it's back in Canada. We don't know where it's going to be in 2021 yet. Um, there's a lot of talk, none of it official, that Edmonton is the primary target for Hockey Canada. And that if Hockey Canada can work out a deal with Edmonton, the whole 2021 World Junior Tournament would be um, in, in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I think we'll know more on that in November. And, and I think, just guessing here, that either Edmonton's going to get it or in November we'll find out that it's being put out to bid and that cities all across Canada will have an opportunity to bid on it. So um, we'll see where that one goes. I should point out that in addition to 2021, Canada is also hosting the tournament in 2024, 2026, 2028, and 2031. So between 2019 and 2031, by my count, one, two, three, four, five, six tournaments in Canada. Now, what I think that means is um, Hockey Canada is always going to look at, at, at bottom lines. Um, and the bigger the arenas and the, the more likely it is that we're going to continue to go to bigger centers, National Hockey League cities where they have big rinks. But I don't think for a moment that it's just the bottom line for Hockey Canada. And I think what the, the Toronto-Montreal experience and the Buffalo experience taught them was that you, you do have to cater to some smaller markets. You do have to go back to your constituents. And Halifax was a great World Junior Championship. So I don't think Halifax is out of the mix at all. And in fact, given the fact that there will be one, two, three, four, five, six World Juniors between this Christmas and 2031, I'm going to bet that at least one of them, maybe two of them, could end up being in quote-unquote smaller centres. Um, you know, could London and Windsor do it? Could London and Kitchener do it? Um, Halifax? Um, you know, I think those are all possibilities. We've been to, you know, Saskatoon and Regina in the past. So I wouldn't rule out any of the smaller centres, non-NHL um, locales in Canada, and I think they'll get an opportunity. So in answer to the question about Halifax, um, Jordan's question, I, I think they could be in the mix. And again, the, the long way to go here, and there's a lot of business to take care of, but uh, with that many tournaments coming up, I've got to believe at least one of them is going to be in, quote-unquote, a smaller junior hockey venue uh, like Halifax or London or Kitchener or Windsor or somewhere like that. Well, I guess that pretty much does it for this episode of the Bobcast. I did actually have a whole bunch of listener feedback that I was going to get to, and um, one pretty funny story where um, I could illustrate what an insufferable wine douchebag I've become. Um, but they're going to have to wait. Um, we're running out of time here. i got to skate. So I will, uh, I will leave you with this one final listener feedback. Um, this one from Natine Sharan. 
Hello, Bob. Hope you're having a wonderful Thanksgiving. I don't have much of a question today. Just simply, how about that Elias Pedersen, eh? Obviously a happy Vancouver Canuck fan. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bobcast. Uh, We'll be back at you in a couple of weeks, and uh, we'll uh, tell more funny stories and uh, make more fun of myself. Have a good one. Take care. Okay, that's it for the At TSN Hockey Every Other Friday Bobcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like to submit a question on hockey or just about anything else, email it to bobcast at bellmedia.ca. That's B-O-B-C-A-S-T at bellmedia.ca, and we'll try to get it on the next Bobcast. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. That's at TSN Bob McKenzie. And for great hockey coverage all year round, follow the At TSN Hockey Twitter account and make tsn.ca your source for all things hockey, especially for the Tuesday and Thursday editions of Insider Trading with myself, Darren Dreger, and Pierre Lebrun. Thanks for tuning into the Bobcast. See you next time, and have a great weekend.